All right, we're going to talk about fear this morning. Now that we've spotlighted Bethany on stage with the lights, we're going to talk about fear. And I was thinking about how to start this morning and thinking about, well, maybe we should raise our hands. Who's afraid of spiders, snakes, heights, airplanes, etc., etc.? But I don't want to do that because I might be tempted to put someone on the spot. And that's not good for us. So what we're going to do is just imagine we passed out that piece of paper and said, write down your top five fears. Imagine that you're looking at that piece of notepad paper uh, and listing out your top five fears. And then we pass all those in and we pull them up on stage and we start reading them. And some of us are going to laugh because some of them are, are kind of silly. Uh, sometimes we're going to cry because there's some heavy fears uh, that we carry. But I think what we're going to find is that we are all in some way impacted by fear and that there's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, but the impact is, is similar. We're weighed down, bogged down at times by fear. And so as we think about fear, uh, I wanted to go to the ultimate source of truth. So I went to lifehack.org and I want to read you the top three fears uh, according to lifehack.org that people have. Here's the first one in third place, the bronze medalist, fear of uncertainty. You ever been out to lunch or to dinner with someone who had a fear of uncertainty and it took them 20 minutes to order a cheeseburger? You ever been out to lunch with that person? Maybe you are that person and everyone's pointing at you. And then ultimately they order the same thing they had last time and the time before that and the time before that. Fear of uncertainty will keep us stuck in bad places. Sometimes it's as simple and as lighthearted as what to order at a restaurant. Sometimes it's the inability to make a move in a job where maybe uh, there's a boss that's impossible to get along with, or maybe you, the Lord has led you in an entirely different direction, but because of fear of uncertainty of what's next, I can't see it, I don't know what, I can't control it, we push pause and we don't make a move, but maybe we're being directed to move. For some of us, it happens in relationship, and we have really meaningful relationships, and we're scared to bring up difficult things in those relationships, fearing what would happen if I did. Fear of uncertainty outweighs our fear of things not changing. Fear of uncertainty will keep us stuck in bad places. The second one, according to lifehack.org, fear of failure. So we all handle fear of failure differently, right? Some of us push into it uh, and fight. Some of us run flight. For me, I think about um, the little areas where I'm afraid of failing so I don't try. A tiny, small area like building a chicken coop. Uh, sometimes they're bigger, though. Sometimes they're more significant to life. I recall in the past at previous churches being invited to speak or to preach and what came out of my mouth was more or less, if there's no one else at this church who can preach, if there's not someone else who can do it, consider me your backup. So essentially, if there's no one else who can walk on stage and not fall off, I will do it. But I don't want to, so please don't ask. So fear of failure keeps us from being open to how God might want to use us. Fear of failure keeps us from uh, having an appetite, even a desire to be discomfortable as uncomfortable as we follow Jesus. Fear of failure keeps us focused on our limitations, not our Father's possibilities. Number one was fear of rejection. So maybe you go back to middle school or high school and asking some boy or some girl out and just a, the way your heart fluttered and um, you remember those emotions when you smile and you laugh. I've told you many times when I first asked Nicole out, she accuses me of demanding her phone number. Now, I don't believe that's true, and I deny it to this day, but if 
by some random chance, it is true. It's not, but if by some random chance it is true, uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection played a part because I was so busy trying to get that phone number that I could not possibly do that and carry on a conversation at the same time. Fear of rejection keeps us from trying. Fear of rejection keeps us from trying the things even that God puts in front of us. And so then we say, well, gosh, God doesn't work in my life with power. God doesn't do anything significant in and through me. I haven't seen God do anything. And our father's like, gosh, have you tried? Fear of rejection keeps us stuck. Fear of rejection keeps us from trying. We're going to be in Genesis 20 this morning. We've come eight chapters through the life of Abraham. And we're going to see that our friend Abraham is scared. He's scared just like we get scared. And so when Abraham gets scared, it's going to cause him to forget God's past faithfulness. He's going to completely forget the incredible things he has seen God do that should give him hope for God's faithfulness today and tomorrow. He's also going to abandon God's purpose. I mean, who has a bigger calling on their life than Abraham? And so many tangible demonstrations of that calling. And in a moment of fear, Abraham abandons God's purposes for his life. In his fear, he takes control. In his fear, he moves from being led by the Lord to taking control of his circumstances, his decision-making, where and what he'll do and go and say. And last, the fear causes him to miss an opportunity to show God to a godless king, to show God to a godless nation. Misses an opportunity. Uh, some of you have had that happen, where you've had a great opportunity to share about Jesus with someone you've been praying for, to share about Jesus with someone who you can see that they're hurting, and what they don't need is some sort of slap on the back or some sort of pithy comment. What they need is Jesus, and you just watch the opportunity float by. And then in hindsight, you think, that's exactly what I was waiting for. And I missed it. Abraham misses an opportunity to show God to a godless king and a godless nation. Fear is a faith-crushing response that stems from our belief that our problems are bigger than our God. Fear is a faith-crushing response that stems from our belief that our problems are bigger than our God. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 20 of the book of Genesis, and we're going to read the first seven verses together. And I want us to simply see together that God does not abandon his purposes even though sometimes we as his people do. God does not abandon his purposes in us and through us and for us and for his glory through us just because sometimes we do. Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said to his, of his wife, of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech came of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, 
know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. You and all who are yours. And we've been down this road before. Genesis chapter 12, same thing in Egypt. Here in chapter 20, Abraham is traveling into a new land. Abraham has this wife, and she is beautiful. And he knows that the people of the land, he knows that the king of the land is going to see his wife, is going to want to bring her into the castle and do poorly to him. And so what does he say? When you get into the land, say that you're my sister so that it will go well for me, so that I will be treated well because you are my sister. Abimelech takes Sarah. God comes to Abimelech and says, wrong move, buddy. And Abimelech, in, in his defense, says, oh, oh, don't hold that against me. I didn't know any better. They both lied. And God says, I know. He is a prophet. Invite him in. He will pray for you, and you will live. Now, we got to remember, God has this promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, it's where we started our journey. Remember, God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home, the place that you know, and come with me and go to a land that I will show you. And on that way and in that land that I will show you, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I will make you a great nation, eventually a, a father of a multitude of nations. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the world from coast to coast, cover to cover, continent to continent. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. And Abraham starts to deviate. Now for the second time. And so God intervenes to protect the good promises he has made to Abraham, the good future that he has for Abraham, God intervenes to protect the good that he has promised, even though Abraham is the perpetrator. God intervenes to protect Abimelech, the innocent bystander. God intervenes to protect Sarah from Abimelech, Sarah, the accomplice. So the accomplice, the innocent bystander, and the perpetrator, God intervenes on behalf of all three in spite of the mess Abraham has made. Now, Abraham's not just guilty, right? He is a repeat offender. If you are someone who manages employees at work, uh, if you have young children at home, uh, if you have grandkids that come over to your house, what frustrates you more than anything? Saying the same thing over and over and over and it not being acted upon. The same thing over and over. Repeat mistake. First time mistakes, that's great. Everyone makes them. I told you not to do that. You did it. I told you again. You did it again. It makes my blood boil. Or just mine. <laughs> Abraham is a repeat offender. He says to his wife, say that you're my sister so that it may go well for me. He says that in Genesis chapter 12. We see that Abraham gets scared and he looks out for number one. Because when we're afraid, our Fear reveals who is really number one in our lives, doesn't it? We get protective of what we value most. We get protective of who we value most. I've mentioned to you even just the fear of walking on stage and being up front. And I wish I could say that 100% of my fear came from the fact that I'm holding God's word and trying to make it clear. That I'm holding God's word and trying to show us where and how and when it applies to our lives. That might be a small part of it, but you know what the bigger part of my fear is? 
walking up on stage and slipping and falling. Walking up on stage and looking like a dope because I forget my name or my passage or what we're talking about. All very possible things. So I have six pages of color-coded notes. And I will never take more than like three steps away from this spot. I will always be within eyesight of my notes. So I see in my heart that there's a desire. I'm going to walk in. I don't need that. Um, I see in my heart that there's a desire to protect and preserve and to promote numero uno. And that fear, the red flag, that fear is an indicator. That fear is like a blinking light, check engine light on the dashboard of your car saying something's not right. Fear exposes who is at the center of our world. Abraham looks out for number one for the second time and he gets scared and he fails. Can you relate? Have you ever repeated your own sin? Have you ever repeated your own mistakes? Maybe it's your temper. You blew up on, on someone you care about. A husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, a mother, a father, a sibling, a friend, a co-worker, a peer, a boss. And you said, never again. I can't, I can't do that ever again. That was terrible. It was such an embarrassment to myself. It was so disgraceful to the name of God. And you go days, you go weeks, you go months, maybe you go years without that happening again. And then something happens and like a mousetrap going, bang, you do it again. And what does the enemy say? I told you you were worthless. I told you you were useless to God. I told you you would do that again. I told you you were a fraud. You did it again. Maybe it's guarding your mind, guarding your eyes regarding the way that you talk about other people, gossip, slander, a host of other things. You go days and weeks and months and see victory, see the Lord work in really significant ways, see your heart change. Then it happens again. Mousetrap. Gotcha. And what does the enemy say? I told you you'd do it again. I told you you were a fraud. The hard part is sometimes we hear that from our brothers and sisters in the Lord, don't we? Uh, the enemy heaps guilt upon guilt, but sometimes our brothers and sisters in the Lord who have not fully experienced the grace of God don't have grace to give to others and heap even more guilt and shame on us. That's tough. It happens sometimes. We shrink away from everything that the Lord has for us when we believe that God can't use us, won't use us, or has just grown tired of dealing with us. And so we see that God goes to Abimelech to intervene. God goes to Abimelech and says, Abimelech, you're in trouble. This man's mine. He's my prophet. I've got plans for him. Sure, he's deviated, but God doesn't abandon his plans for Abraham just because for the moment Abraham has abandoned those plans. In Deuteronomy 31.8, we're reminded that the Lord goes before us. And this is Moses talking to Joshua, saying, Joshua, here it comes. It's game time. It's finals, test-taking moment. You're headed into the promised land. Uh, you've got some big things to come. Uh, he says this. He says, it is the Lord who goes before you, and he will be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So do not fear. So do not be dismayed. Right? Don't fear. Why would you fear? You've got the Lord. And so sometimes we've got to remember that the Lord going before us looks like the Lord coming behind us. And, and I think um, that there's something significant here theologically because we didn't get into what we have with the Lord by our own doing and we won't walk in faithfulness day after day after day simply by our own doing. And so if God doesn't demand perfection 
from us to be called a son and a daughter, we should expect that he's prepared to help us walk daily with that new title. And that sometimes he's going to come in behind us and help clean up our mess to protect and preserve the future that he has for us, to protect and preserve the plan he is working out in us and through us. Sometimes we ask our young kids to go clean their room. And they go do it, and sometimes they come back and it looks great. Sometimes they come back and they say, we're done, and it looks worse than when they started. And so on those occasions, we'll send them back into their room. On occasion, we'll go in and we'll help, and we'll, we'll clean up the mess. See, God doesn't require our rooms, our spiritual rooms, to be perfectly clean before he puts us into service. If you're someone who feels like God's calling on your life has passed you by because there's a little dirt on the floor in your spiritual room, don't opt out of his calling. Don't opt out of what he's doing. Don't opt out of what he puts before you. If your life is messy, don't opt out of what he's called you to do and who he's called you to be. He does not abandon his purposes in us or through us, even when we momentarily abandon them. Ourselves. The second thing I want you to see from the text today is God does not abandon his people. Not only does he not abandon his purposes in us, for us, and through us, but he doesn't abandon us even though for a moment we abandon him. We're going to read the rest of Genesis chapter 20, picking up in verse 8. Listen for Abimelech, King Abimelech's response to the Lord, and contrast that with Abraham's response to the Lord. Compare and contrast the responses that we see here. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, If you're waiting for a good response, it's not coming. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. When Abimelech took then... Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and he gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. I love that he says brother there. Because when God came to Abimelech, he said, This man's wife. And Abimelech's looking at Abraham and Sarah and said, Hey Sarah, I gave your brother thousand pieces of silver. Maybe I'm reading into it. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Do you see how contrite king of Abimelech, the wicked king of Gerar Abimelech is in comparison to God's man, in comparison to the patriarch, to the man of promise, 
Abraham, we see that King Abimelech shows contrition. He, in verse 9, he says, what have I done? Clearly, I'm at fault in some way. What have we done to you, Abraham, for you to react to us this way? He's contrite, and at no point do we see contrition from our man Abraham. We also see that King Abimelech is concerned for the well-being of his people, his family, his extended family, and all of his people. Whereas we see in Abraham, he's just concerned with number one. King Abimelech says, why have you brought this upon me and upon my household and our kingdom? Abraham basically says, well, the ends justify the means. I'm going to take care of myself. King Abimelech says, you have done things to me that ought not to be done. This is not right under any circumstances. It's interesting that God often will use the people that we least expect to draw our attention to some part of our life that we have allowed to slip. Some part of our life that we have not submitted to Jesus. Think about Jonah. Think about Nineveh. God uses the wicked city of Nineveh to show what a contrite response looks like even though God's man, Jonah, had no desire to see this people group forgiven, and Jonah is shown as petty and vindictive and unforgiving to the very end. Think about in Romans, where we see that the gospel was rejected by the Jews, and then the gospel goes to the Gentiles, in part to save the Gentiles, but also in part to help the Jews look and see God's movement in and amongst the Gentiles and say, God is at work, we want that, why isn't that happening here? And that through God's work for the Gentiles, the Jews would be saved and they would be brought back to faith. I wonder if this happens today. Just taking a survey of town, I don't have statistics, but I would guess that DHS might do more for families in this community uh, than Christians do. I would guess that maybe some of our elementary schools who are doing really neat things for kids might do more for kids and needy children than Christians do. Think about the county as a whole. I would guess that maybe local politicians are doing more to advance good things for people than Christians are. So in Scripture, what we see is King Abimelech shows how far Abraham has slid, how far he has deviated from God's plan. We see with Nineveh, how far, how off base Jonah has gotten. With the Gentiles and Romans, we see how far the Jews have drifted. So when we see that happening in culture, it should cause us to look inward and say, why is my inclination when I see something not right in town or a people group suffering or a particular need that my first thought is someone should do something about that rather than what could I do? And it may be the glimpse of the need that I'm seeing is God pointing towards something that I have been strategically positioned to be a part of. The compare and contrast shows how far Abraham has slipped. I want to consider some of the things that we see from Abraham today that we can learn about fear in our own lives. Uh, the first is that uh, when fear controls us, it distorts our circumstances. It causes us to miss out on God's work and see only obstacles. So it's clear here that this king is responsive to the Lord. It is clear that he has some sort of moral compass, but Abraham, clouded by fear, just sees an obstacle. 
just sees a king and says, this king is more powerful than my God. So he takes matters into his own hands to come up with a solution to protect number one. When our lenses are clouded by fear, we will only see obstacles. We will miss out on what God's doing, and we won't jump into it because we don't see it shrinking back in fear. Not only has it clouded his ability to see God at work, fear controls Abraham, and, and he, so he's unable to trust God. The God who has showed himself powerful over and over and over. Abraham's unable to see it, unable to rest in it, unable to experience his peace as his lenses, his spiritual lenses, his eyes, his lenses are clouded by fear. Third, fear controls Abraham. And the lenses of fear blur the truth around him and blur the truth about him. Blurs the truth around him, and we see that because he justifies himself. He says, well, she's actually my sister. It's not that bad. I didn't totally lie to you, right? God has clearly called him on his sin, and he's continuing to justify himself. He's continuing to try to rationalize away why what he did wasn't so bad. Lenses of fear have clouded the truth around him and have clouded the truth about him. He's not able to even look into his own heart and see his sin. Some of you are familiar with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The idea, uh, in a nutshell, being that it is by God's grace alone that an opportunity was created for us to be saved. It is by God's power alone that a punishment sufficient for all of our sin was made and it's by faith alone, not by works, not by putting money in the church offering, not by showing up here or anywhere else to do good things. It's by faith alone that we get our right standing before God. You see, by grace alone, the Father sends the Son to live a perfect and sinless life, offers his life up on a cross, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, right? Atonement for sin. A blood sacrifice was needed to make atonement for sin. So this perfect sinless life becomes a worthy sacrifice for our sin. And then when we, by faith, follow Jesus, Jesus' righteousness gets credited to our spiritual bank account. And the Father looks at us and doesn't see all the things that he could see. He chooses to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to my account and applied to your account when, by faith, we follow Jesus. And so what's interesting here is that the doctrine of salvation by faith alone through grace alone creates a precedence by which we didn't earn our right standing before God. And it creates a precedence that should help us understand that we don't continue in our walk with God. We don't continue in that life of faith by our own power. That we need Him daily. We didn't just need Him once, we need Him daily. And so this, this gets cloudy for us and we begin to think that our position before God is based on our ability to do good things, our ability to maybe control our temper, our ability to maybe not swear as much. And we replace this relationship with a Savior with religion. And religion doesn't save. If good works could save us, someone like Bill Gates would be praised, who's probably given more money than any of us will ever see, think of, dream, or imagine to help needy people in our world. But who does Jesus praise? Jesus praised the widow who gives like 
virtually no money, and there's probably more money in the seat cushions of our couches at home than what she gave. But she's praised because she gave with a cheerful heart. She gave with a heart fully devoted to the Lord. And so that we see that religion, we see that works don't save. We needed God to get in to his family. We need God to live a faithful life. creates a precedence that says life is better when I'm not in control. creates a precedence that says life is better when he's in charge. It creates a precedence when we realize what I need and want most, I can't do for myself. What I want most and need most, only the Father can do for me. makes me think of this sort of toy thing we had at home. It's a Kawasaki mule. It's got four wheels, a steering wheel, and a little bench. So the kids love to play on it, ride in it, uh, drive it. It's useful to make a whole bunch of projects a little bit easier. Uh, but when they drive, it doesn't go well. First of all, we go really, really slow. So we don't get anywhere, and no one has any fun. Zach, our youngest when he drives, looks at every tree and structure and fence is like a video game, and he gets more points for the more things that he hits. And so I have to hold firmly to the wheel, or he will drive us right into things with a huge smile on his face and wild eyes. And so the point is, is that it doesn't go well when they drive. It's no fun when they drive, because they don't really know how to drive it. They're really too young to be driving. It's so much more fun for them and for me when I drive. It's so much more safe for them and for me when I drive. I can drive it as it was meant to be driven. They can't. And so life following Jesus is daily handing him the keys and letting him drive. Following Jesus is daily handing him the keys and letting him drive. Life is better for us when he drives. Life is safer for us when he drives. He can navigate obstacles that we don't even see. Following Jesus means handing him the keys and letting him drive every single day. This passage ends with Abraham going in, praying for Abimelech, blessing Abimelech and blessing his house, and the Lord lifts the curse off the house. It's fascinating because Abraham brought the curse on the house. Abram's the one who made a mess of everything, and God allows him to still be a blessing. You see that God doesn't abandon his purposes or his people? He goes to bat for his purpose and goes to bat for his people. And even though Abraham has made a mess of everything, God still uses him to be a blessing. I think maybe there's some parallels for us today. God has sent us the blessed culture. And we spend a whole bunch of time condemning and judging it. He's made a mess and he still allows us be part of his work. God has called us to be a gathering of people that would point Douglas County to Jesus. And when we gather, we usually wrestle and argue about who gets to do things their way or what they want or how it looks. We're supposed to be sacrificing our preferences and our comfort for his purpose. We tend to sacrifice our pur- his purpose for our preferences and our comfort. God has made us a diverse group of people, an age backgrounds, the ways that we like to worship, the songs that we like to sing, how long we think the message should go. 
instead of praising a God who makes so many different people one, brings so many different backgrounds together to make one family that is better together than apart, we complain about the little, the mean, the differences in each other's preference, the differences in each other's style. Abraham is the one that messed everything up and God still allows him to be part of his beautiful work and bless the king and his home and their country. Church, we've made a mess of a lot of things. Praise the Lord. He invites us and allows us to continue to play a meaningful part in his work. As we close, I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 and 8 are a couple of great passages that maybe you haven't read in a while, but I would suggest them. The context is the people approaching the promised land. You may recall that they have wandered in the wilderness for like 40 years. I don't know if you've been on a road trip recently, but if you've been on a road trip and you get to the end of the road trip, you're toast. You just want to go home to your bed, to your shower, to your refrigerator, The Israelites wander for decades, and then God says, by the way, the promised land that I've been talking about is filled with giants, and you need to drive them out. You wouldn't blame them for just wilting (laughs) under the weight of that. They were terrified. Listen to what the Lord says. They're terrified. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 7. The Lord says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember that the Lord your God, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. See, God is saying, hey, remember what I've done. Look back. Remember, haven't I been faithful? Haven't I been great? remember and go forward in that confidence. Picking up in in chapter 8, he adds this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. In other words, people of Israel, people of Roseburg Alliance Church, look back at how God has been preparing you for this moment. He says, your shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. Some of you have kids. 40 days of kids is a really long time for a pair of shoes to stay looking new. The Lord says, it's been 40 years and your shoes haven't worn out. You were hungry and I fed you with food from the sky, with food from the ground, with food all around. I took care of you. I met your needs. Do you see how you've been prepared for this moment? First he says, look back and remember what I did. Look around. Consider that you've been prepared for this moment. And then finishing up verse 7, Deuteronomy 8, it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees, and a land of honey. That's says, 
do you remember what we're doing here? Do you remember what we're all about? We're going to the promised land. God's good plans for his people, even though for periods of time they can't see it, even though for periods of time they look around and forget where they're heading, forget who they're following, forget what he's doing in them, through them, and for them, and for the nations because of them. He says, remember my past faithfulness. Remember that I have prepared you for this moment. Remember the good that I'm doing. Some of you have really heavy fears right now. We're all in different places with fears. It's, it's an ebb and flow, a season of life. If we're not there now, we'll be there in a couple months. If we're not there in a couple months, maybe a year. The Bible says a lot about fear. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For the Lord will be with you. Psalms 23.4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 2 Timothy 1.7 For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid. The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We're going to end uh, with a song Bethany's going to lead us. It's one of my favorite songs, uh, maybe ever. Uh, it's a great song to loop if you have anything at all in your life that is just really hard to release to the Lord right now, uh, this is a good one. Um, it's called I Will Look Up. The chorus goes like this. I will look up, for there is none above you. No king above you. I will bow down to tell you that I need you. I will look back and see that you are faithful. I will I look ahead, believing you are able. Don't know what the relevance is to your life at the moment, but following Jesus will perpetually put us in a place of tension of our will, of his will, of his dreams for us, our lower dreams for ourselves. And so there should be a perpetual tension, a perpetual discomfort as we're reminded he's leading us towards bigger and better than we can even imagine. And it requires faith, it requires following, it requires trusting. And so this is the fundamental DNA part of following Jesus. And the call is to remember his past faithfulness, to remember that he has prepared us even for this moment. And to remember the good, to remember his character that is good, and to remember the works of his hands that are for our good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you do not abandon us, even though on many occasions we have proved worthy of being abandoned. Thank you that you do not abandon your good plans in us, through us, and for us, even though at many points in our journey we have abandoned your plans. We thank you for Abraham, Lord, and the entirety of this material, which effectively conveys the weight of your favor upon Abraham and his unworthiness of your favor. Lord, and we're reminded that even though our spiritual rooms are messy, have dirt on the floor, Lord, even though we've dropped the ball and even repeated that failure. Thank you that you go to bat for us. Lord, would you invite us into your work? Lord, may we step into it confident of your good character and your good future for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.